Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, before we get going, I just want to give a quick plug to The Nervous Breakdown, thenervousbreakdown.com, an online culture magazine and literary community and blog type situation that I founded in 2006. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of the Nervous Breakdown? It's a good place on the internet to read things, and it also has its own independent press called TNB Books, which publishes in both paperback and ebook formats. Uh, it publishes titles like Subversia by D.R. Haney, My Dead Pets Are Interesting by Lenore Zion, Paper Doll Orgy by Ted McCagg. The beautiful anthology edited by Elizabeth Collins and featuring the work of a variety of writers and Bored, B-O-A-R-D, a work of literary collage by Justin Benton and me. The Nervous Breakdown also has its own official book club for just $9.99 a month. You can get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a very good deal. So yeah, it's called The Nervous Breakdown. You can find it at thenervousbreakdown.com. Please go check it out and read something. It's a website for bookish type people. You can experience it on your computer. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something you can do while you're alone. This cannot happen without you. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting in Los Angeles, in the desert metropolis of Los Angeles, California, uh, I'm here with a microphone and a MacBook Pro and a low-grade liquid stimulant. How are you today? Uh, a couple of orders of business here at the outset, just to review the basics quickly. Uh, it feels like a good time to do that. The podcast, this podcast, is free. Uh, I offer it to you freely brothers and sisters. You can subscribe uh, at iTunes or via Stitcher. Uh, and better yet, you can download the free official Other People app, which is available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, 
or Android device. It's the official app of this program. It's the best way to listen, in my opinion. New episodes automatically upload to the app. Uh, You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes, and you can also access the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So go get that. It's free. Uh, Otherwise, Tao Lin is the guest today. His new novel, Taipei, is now available from Vintage Press. Just published. Hot off the press. Uh, And this is a two-part interview, which is a first for this program. I feel like a lot of my guests have talked about Tao. And I feel like there's a lot of interest in him. And uh, when we recorded the interview, it just sort of kept going. And I let it go. So I figured I would share with you the full interview. And uh, this is part one. The next uh, installment will be uh, going live in just a few days. So uh, Tao and I have known uh, one another for a few years. It's like mostly we cyber know one another, which uh, seems to be the way of modern life. Uh, Though we have met in person before. And within the last year, uh, I believe we realized uh, via email that we both are fans of uh, Terrence McKenna. The late Terrence McKenna, uh, who at the very least is uh, one of the most captivating talkers that I've ever heard. He's great to listen to. So uh, with this in mind, I thought it would be interesting to share with you some excerpts of Terrence McKenna talking. After which uh, I will offer a uh, response, an unscripted uh, improvisational response of some kind. So uh, what I've done, I've taken a Terrence McKenna lecture. Uh, I've grabbed some uh, short snippets relatively randomly. And uh, now I'm going to play a few of them, if that's okay. So uh, here's the first one. Here's Terrence McKenna talking. Are you ready? Are you ready? Here we go. So a naive person, or at least I thought, in thinking about telepathy before I went to the Amazon, that telepathy would be hearing somebody else think. That's not what telepathy is. Telepathy is seeing what somebody else means. Okay. Uh, What comes to mind for me uh, immediately is the phrase, do you see what I'm saying? Because I say that to people. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm asking them to be telepathic. And uh, if for some reason you are listening right now and having a telepathic experience of this podcast, uh, you should email me at uh, letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Let me know what you're seeing. Because that I feel that would be interesting. And I also feel that I need to go to the Amazon. So... Once you sever from this matrix of meaning, what James Joyce called the mama matrix most mysterious, 
Once you sever yourself from that, then you have nothing but rationalism, ego, and male uh, dominance to guide you. And that's what has led us into the nightmarish labyrinth of technical civilization, overpopulation, classism, racism, sexism, propaganda, so forth and so on. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the mama matrix, the mama matrix, it feels hard to say mama matrix, but the mama matrix, most mysterious, uh, I definitely feel like uh, I need to connect with it more consistently, which assumes that I've connected with it before. And, uh, I can't say that I'm sure of that, but it feels like something I would be highly interested in connecting with. seems that we've been severed from the mama matrix and we need to reestablish a connection with that. You know, Terrence McKenna obviously goes more deeply into this stuff in his full lectures. I'm just skimming the surface here. So, uh, let's do another one. Is this enjoyable? Are you guys... <laughs> You guys enjoying this? Let's do another one. Uh, here he is once again, Mr. Terrence McKenna. You cannot, we cannot evolve any faster than we evolve our language because you cannot go to places that you cannot describe. Okay. Uh, I don't think I've ever been someplace that I couldn't describe in some way, right? I think that I think that's correct. I also think we need to evolve uh, our language. I need to evolve my language. And what comes to mind as I say that is uh, when you evolve a language, does that mean you evolve it in the direction of complexity? I hope that's not the case. I hope the sign of a language evolving rests in clarity and simplicity. In the service of complex ideas. You know what I'm saying? I'm not suggesting that we need to dumb it down. I'm just saying that uh, we need to smarten it up by becoming more clear about what we're describing. That's what I think. Life is some kind of moment suspended between eternities in which you may have a real opportunity to get your shit together and figure out what's going on. But if you run around saying, you know, not that experience and God forbid that experience and I don't want to go there, well, then they'll just plant you and lower your box and you'll be another person who never quite got their act together. I was, uh, I was experiencing a sinking feeling as I listened to that. And now, uh, just now, in a flash, I envisioned myself, I envisioned my, uh, my dead body being lowered into the ground in a box and people standing over the, uh, the hole looking at it <laughs> like somehow I could see them and they were looking disappointed essentially. And now I'm imagining, uh, my tombstone being engraved with the, uh, the words, he never got his act together. 
I need to get my act together. I need to figure out how to get my act together. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, my guest today is Tao Lin. I already mentioned that. I'm very pleased to have him here on the program. His new novel, Taipei, is now available from Vintage Contemporaries in paperback. And uh, this is part one of our conversation. Part two, once again, will be going live in just a couple of days. So here he is, folks. This is Tao Lin, and his new novel, once again, is called Taipei. I'm in my room. I'm sitting on my sofa um, in Manhattan, 29th Street. That's it. Okay, and did, I, th- I thought you lived in... Did you live in Brooklyn for a while? I, I always kind of associate you, and I, th- I feel like in media coverage of you, you're so often associated with, like, Brooklyn, but you've moved to Manhattan. Yeah, I lived in Brooklyn the last two years, I think. I moved here... Or no, I didn't live there the last two years. I moved out of there two years ago. Why? Here. Because my brother and or my parents or something own a studio apartment on 29th Street so I can stay here and just pay the maintenance fee, which is like $560 a month. Oh, Jesus, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you work like nearby, right? Like that also gives you better proximity because you work out of the library, right? Yeah. The library is on, it's like a 15 walk away. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I want to start, I think with you biographically, like I'm interested to know about, uh, your childhood. I mean, I know a lot about you just cause I've read a lot that's been published online, but obviously there's a lot I don't know. And I think people who are fans of your work and who are fascinated by you would be interested to hear about how you grew up. So 
Uh, you were raised in Florida, is that correct? Yeah. Whereabouts? Um, in Orlando, outside Orlando, in three different houses. What well, well, don't you know about me? Um, I mean, a lot. I mean, I don't know a lot, but I'm just, you know, I know that you're from Florida. I know that, I guess I knew that it was the Orlando area, but I'm curious to hear you talk about, uh, you know, what the experience of growing up there was like for you. Like, what kind of kid were you? Uh, I feel like I described it all in the book. <laughs> you read, did you read Titanic? Uh, I, I'm working my way through it, but I'm always like racing, you know, to uh, to prepare for these things because I do two a week. So, what did okay. you? Why don't you recap, or can you talk a little bit about it? I don't want you to have to like rehash everything that's in the book, but yeah, I'll just try to. Um, what first in like elementary school, I was, I guess, quiet and didn't have any friends. I don't think. Then middle school, I was, like, kind of popular. There were, like, two groups of popular, or two, like, groups of people who were, like, friends with each other. And I was friends with, like, both groups somehow. Okay, so... <laughs> then in high school. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so, like, elementary school, uh, you said you, you were kind of quiet and didn't have any friends? Like, why? Like, were you just really shy, or were, like, people mean to you? Really shy, probably. I had, like, one friend per year, <clears throat> but I don't remember, like, what they were like or anything. So, I, I barely remember anything from elementary school. Yeah, it was just like a... I don't... I have a terrible memory of my youth. Uh, were you quiet in elementary school? No, I, you know, I wasn't. I don't think I was. I mean, Jesus, l listen to me. You know, you know, I'm I'm not exactly quiet, but um, I I could be shy, I guess, in some ways. But I was fairly social. But I just don't remember well, like my life. <laughs> I tend to block yeah. it out. <laughs> Let's see. I only remember what I write, have written about. Well, well, I think the act of writing is a kind of a good way. Because the thing is, is that. I say that I don't remember, but it's in there somewhere. And I think sometimes the act of writing, especially if you're working in an autobiographical vein, is a way of kind of dredging that stuff up, you know, in some in some form. I mean, it's always a little bit unreliable because memory is unreliable, but um, it's a way of kind of ordering your past, you know, and figuring out what the hell happened. Yeah. And it's different now with Gmail because I can just, check like what what I was emailing that day and I can remember like what was happening that day. Do you do before that? Gmail. Yeah, yeah. See I need to get on yeah. I need to get on Gmail. I feel like I've like my emails I don't know what my email's through. Oh. It's through like some it's like through GoDaddy or something. It's terrible. But I feel like Gmail like offers you GoDaddy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no that's GoDaddy is like the internet it's like a website thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like I got like email addresses issued when I started my websites, and I think I bought the domains through there. So, but I feel like Gmail uh -huh. is like a superior like archival situation. Yeah, yeah, it just saves everything and can search everything. It's really 
interesting. So do you ever, okay, so like when you're using Gmail to like reference your past, and I'm not done with your childhood. Uh, I got to remind myself not to forget, but um, just, to, just to continue in the, uh, on this train of thought for a second, like do you ever find yourself uh, surprised by what you find on Gmail or do you ever find yourself um, humbled in some way because you realize that like, you know, your particular memory of a situation or a time is totally at odds with the way things were? Um, yeah, all the time, I think. For example, sometimes I'll think like, why isn't this person responding to my email or something? <laughs> and then I'll search your name and I'll see I haven't responded to the last like, three emails or something. But I forgot or something. So wait, so you did not respond to them and then you were wondering why they did not respond to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I did something like I flaked on something that I forgot. So I'm like, why are they doing this to me? <laughs> That happened kind of often. You flake them? And there's like, yeah, like I say, I say like, I'll do this, but then at the last moment, I'm like, no, I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'll find things like, like I found this long thing I wrote to prepare to talk to my publisher in Melville House, like a long, um, like, argument thing, and I completely forgot about that, but I found it one day. So wait, what was it? Um, it's too much to go into, just the messages that I just forgot, like a complete episode of my life. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, you mentioned earlier, like when you, you were talking about your childhood, that elementary school was fairly solitary, but that in middle school you became popular, uh, and had like a bigger social group. So I'm curious to know, um, about that, you know, like you were like, what, cause I, I, the reason I ask is that, um, I'm interested in, I guess, imagining or getting a better picture of how you, interacted with your friends as a kid <laughs> and I feel like people okay. would be I feel like people would be curious or interested to know that as well like when you were popular were you popular because you were funny or were you somehow popular because of your shyness because I remember there were kids I mean one of my best friends was sort of that way like he became uh, you know well liked and had this really great social life sort of because he was shy if that makes any sense was that the case for you or was it different Probably, partly it was that, because I wouldn't, like, um, people would feel safe around me, probably, because I wouldn't, like, say something to make them feel bad or anything. Yeah, you were like... But I don't know how popular I was. It's hard to tell. Did I you... just felt comfortable, I guess, in middle school. Yeah, I feel like I always I say this and people never believe me, but I always say that eighth grade was the best year of my life, like to to date. Not that I haven't had like nice moments and um you know, but I, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of serious. Like I feel like I really had a good year in eighth grade. <laughs> but how 
I don't know. It's like, just, what's... It was fun. I felt like I felt like I just had a lot of fun, and I felt uh, comfortable. And it was also nice because at my school there was uh, it, my school went to my junior high went to ninth grade, so there was a grade above us, which somehow made things more interesting because there were like older girls and older people to like interact with but yet we weren't we were we were old enough to not be the youngest i don't know you know or maybe it was just like an an accident of timing but i liked being 13 like you know i feel like maybe i peaked you should write a memoir called my happiest year (laughs) eighth grade uh i might you know i'd have to figure out like how to arc it you know it was just like and it was just like juvenile stuff like we just I remember like we got my friends and I got really good at throwing pencils and sticking them into the ceiling uh, because oh, yeah. my, I, I did that. yeah, like my, my school had those like t- <laughs> those tiled ceilings and like uh, we created like this kind of uh, what was it? It's like, like a craze, like everyone started doing it and it started to become like an actual like serious issue at the school because there were like hundreds of pencils <laughs> stuck uh, in the ceiling. And then we started yes. using, yeah, we started using uh, like gumdrops, and we would put like multiple toothpicks through it to create like some sort of like, you know. And then you could stick those in the ceiling, and we we wound up we wound up getting in trouble for it. But that was the kind of stuff we did, and it was for some reason extremely fun for me. Did you do scissors? Did we do what in the ceiling? Scissors? Uh, no, uh, uh-uh. uh. Oh, we did scissors. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got me and I- also. Uh-huh. No, I was just saying I got really, really good at throwing pencils in the ceiling, like I, like to, almost to the point where like I would never miss, you know. What um, video games like did you play? What year was this? This was like nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. So it was like tech. It was like an old school Nintendo, like Super Mario Brothers and Tech Mobile, and I forget, you know. Um, yeah. Did you play many video games? Or no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we played a ton. It was like Nintendo, and we would play... God, I, I, for, this is me right here. I can't remember which games I played, but I just remember my friends and I sitting in either my basement or in somebody's basement playing video games for hours. Oh, did you play Magic Cards? Magic Cards? Do you know what those are? No, uh-uh. Oh, Magic the Gathering. It's like a... Fantasy based game, card game, like fantasy, like orcs and trolls and stuff. Oh, you know, kind of like uh, like Dungeons and Dragons type thing. Yeah, sort of. Were you into that? Yeah, we would. Yeah, we were like all probably like half the students were like really into it to the point that like between classes. You know, like the five to ten minutes you get to go from one class to the next class, we would like all play really fast. I don't even like. See, this is something like I have no uh, frame of reference for. So, like, what do you do? Like, you get a card and then like you're a wizard or something. <laughs> like, how does it you work? You have like a you buy well, you buy a pack of cards and then well, you buy a lot of cards and out of those cards you make a deck like, of 60 cards, and you, like, choose what goes into the deck, and you use those to 
try to like beat the other person. So it's, okay, it's so it's probably not worth tying out and scare the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what kind of student? What kind of student were you? Were you a good student? I didn't try. Well, I tried to minimum, and I got A's and B's. And it uh, seemed like to get a C wasn't. Um, that was what I didn't want yet. So I tried to minimum, and it worked. And did you have, like, girlfriends and stuff in, uh, like, high school? No, no. no. In middle school, like, like, I remember some, like, girls, like, this other girl, like, she, do you want to go out with her or something? I feel like I just didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> yeah. And so that didn't happen. And then... In high school, I was too quiet to, like, even get close to anything like that. Yeah, I was, uh, I was extremely shy. I wish I would have had more presence of mind when I was growing up. I had no idea what I was doing. I guess that's normal, you know, or somewhat normal. I was probably more shy than you were. I was, like, I could tell that, like, the uh, entire school high, like, two. I detected two other people who were as shy or or more than do you out have, of like fifteen. There were there, you said there were only two out of like fifteen hundred who were as shy as you. Yeah, based based on like me just looking or observing. And, and uh, what about what about you? That percentage, do you think? No, no. I was like, see, this is the thing about me is that like, I feel like I was really social and could, can, could generally like talk and, um, you know, socialize, uh, and make friends and stuff like that. But I was very in internally, very, uh, you know, insecure and afraid and shy in a weird way. And especially when it came to like asking girls out, I, which I never did. Um, or I, if I did, it was always like a disaster of like lengthy awkwardness. <laughs> um, you know, but I don't know. It's like weird. Like I think, I think maybe people who went to school with me would say that I seemed social and well adjusted, but that wasn't necessarily my internal experience. So well, I would just say you're probably well adjusted because do you think there's people with who are who seem that way and also don't have insecurities? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess everybody has them. So you can, you know, no one's ever perfectly adjusted. Um, so I guess I was, you know, I was decently well adjusted, but like maybe not as well adjusted as some people thought I might have been, if that makes any sense. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, and it's still, it still sort of seems that way, you know. Um, like I think no I feel like you're well adjusted you do okay I feel like you're probably in the top 5% being well adjusted well, based on how I know that. <laughs> I appreciate that I'm trying you know like it's I, I, I want to be well adjusted you know I want to adjust well <laughs> um, I mean is but that the term well adjusted it's like I think it's different like everyone wants to be well adjusted, I think. 
Yeah. Right? I, I, yeah. I just, I want to like, I, I joke about this sometimes I say like in a kind of like exasperated manner, uh, like who's good at this? Like meaning who's good at being alive. Like I want to be okay at this. <laughs> like, uh, I don't want to be afraid or uncomfortable or angry or, um, struggling. Do you know what I'm saying? I would love to be good at being alive before I die and to be useful or something, you know, like I, that's an okay aspiration. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have that? Do you feel that way? Um, I don't know, but I feel like a lot of most people would think I'm like not well adjusted, but then I, you used to turn well-adjusted if someone, like, if, if someone, like, emails me, like, and then they email me again before I responded, I'll, I'll be, like, I'll think, like, this person isn't well-adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, everyone would probably think I'm not well-adjusted. I mean, just look at my tweets or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, but I think I'm well adjusted. So every it's just like everyone thinks they're well adjusted or wants to be, but everyone has different definitions for it. Right. Well, and I think too, like I think sometimes there is, and I've I've actually because like you're the kind of uh, person and writer or artist or whatever that pe- people talk about and try to parse the meaning of are you are you conscious of that like the fascination that you create in people via the internet in particular yeah but i think that kind of um people i'm friends with don't have that kind of thing you're talking about often you don't think they're fascinated by you no. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, think they they just see like this, this person has to win views or something. It's the people. It's the people. I'm not. I don't feel like I can be friends with that have that kind of thing that you're talking about. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's like to to me, I think that. When someone's just getting to know your work or someone's just becoming familiar with like the way that you present yourself online, um, I don't, I, you know, it, it, I don't quite understand why it stirs so many people. Cause it really does, especially in the literary circles. Like I've talked to people through the years, like a lot of people are big fans. I've talked to other people who are like, you know, what is he doing? This is bullshit. They get angry and it's, it strikes me like the anger strikes me in particular as being strange. <laughs> Cause I, I, I've always, I've always found, uh, I've always found you really funny, uh, not exclusively funny, but I always like got your jokes. I felt like, or, or could understand that you were not being serious a lot of the time. Um, but I also I feel like I can understand the anger part because I feel like I've done gotten that, done, gotten like angry at other people a lot of times. You've gotten angry? Yeah. Like at who? I mean, it doesn't last. And I know it's, I know like, 
I'm not. I know I'm like not feeling what I want to feel, but it happens a lot. Let me think. Um, um, I don't. I want to think about what we talk about other stuff. Yeah, like, like, do you mean like you'll read some Facebook update or you'll read a tweet or you'll read some interview with some author and you'll experience like a brief flash of rage? <laughs> I guess anger isn't the right word. Just like, I'll just be like, I don't like this or like, I, <laughs> you know. It's like an aversion, a, like, feeling, a feeling of aversion. Yeah, yeah. And that's what people feel towards me. And then when I like, even when I read my own interviews or whatever, I can, I can, I think things like this person, I hate this person (laughs) (laughs) to myself. Yeah. Pretty much in everything I do. So I can understand that. Do you, uh, is there, has there ever been anything that you've written that you really, really like, or are you one of those writers who like, you know, you, you do the thing, you write it, you publish it, and then you sort of have, uh, you know, feelings of antipathy toward it afterwards? Uh, I think it's gone through periods, like for years I didn't like a certain style and I would like it again and not like it. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff I've written that I like. Yeah. There's stuff that you yeah. have, there's stuff that you've written that you've been happy with. Yeah. Yeah. Or I don't really know what that means. Like if I like it, or yeah, I guess I do, but not the happy part. What do you mean by that? I guess like you felt like you said what you wanted to say in the way that you wanted to say it. Like you, you got it right. I put that in quotes because I know you can't like ever like, you know, really get things perfect. But you just you came close to what you meant to say. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Probably a, a lot of probably a lot of stuff in my story collection that I feel like I've said it. And I don't need to say it again. And stuff in my first novel also. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, like, passages where I'm like, I said it right here, I don't need to say it again. But I've, like, said it again, like, in interviews, like, ten more times in less articulate terms, ways. Yeah, do you get set? I mean, you've done a lot of press. I feel like you've been really industrious in promoting yourself, which is like something that I want to ask you about because I've always uh, felt like you were unusually shrewd when it came to getting the word out about your work. And I remember like the first time I ever was in contact with you was like early in the days of the nervous breakdown. I remember you sent me, um, I believe it was a copy of Bed, I want to say. And it was this mm-hmm. note, and I and I just remember too, like it's so strange how we get to know people in this day and age. But I remember your old avatar on like MySpace or something, and it was like this uh, like Asian guy with this like really angry face that looked like he was maybe like like in, I don't know what he was doing. Do you remember that avatar photo? 
And, oh yeah, and I, I don't know if I ever use that as the avid, but I know the photo. It's like a picture of a Asian guy playing tennis. Yeah, close up of his face. Yeah, well, that was definitely. I mean, because I I wouldn't remember it. I mean, the only place I could have possibly seen it associated with you would have been as an avatar. So, um, I just remember it was that. on MySpace. Yeah, anyway. yeah, it was on. Yeah. And, and so I thought, like, because I was like, okay, so who's town? I started reading stories, and I was. Um, into it and then i looked you up and i was like is that him became became like this strange uh mystery you know yeah but the thing is i'm not successful i mean compare me to like any say like um what's someone's like juno diaz but someone like half or like a tenth of his success they probably sold a hundred times more books. And... Yeah, I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's so tough. And like, do you have any sense of why a guy like Juno Diaz or uh, Jonathan Saffron Four, or whoever it is, why people are able to sell books? Like, have you, do you have any like concrete thoughts on how it works or is it as big of a mystery to you as it is to most of us? Um... I think part of it is you can go the route of like trying to get grants and stuff like that and trying to get a literary agent to begin with. I don't know. I don't know, really. Well, okay, so let me uh, let me put it to you this way, because it seemed to me, like just kind of knowing you uh, and like watching what you do online and so on, that you've put, like, I don't know, it seems like you have like a good strategic mind and that you're pretty um, disciplined or hardworking when it comes to how you've approached, uh, you know, getting the word out. Like, how, like, I guess the question is how much... Um, organized thought goes into that and how much of it is just you like dicking around online and working intuitively and doing what you think seems interesting in the moment do you know like how much of it is preconceived and planned can you give me an example of a thing oh like one thing that I could, I mean, I could name, I mean god I I guess like the, when you um, sold like shares uh, of your book, you know, that, that whole plot, you know, uh, to kind of raise money for your book where you sold equity in the book itself in the event that it ever earned out or whatever, like that seemed to be a pretty ingenious, um, way of, I don't know, financing it. And then also getting some attention because it did catch on. And so I guess like that would be one example. And then a question that springs to mind in the context of that is, um, you know, like once you figured out that you wanted to do that, then when it came to the execution of it, um, you know, how much work went into it. And then when it came to like getting media attention for it, was that you like sending out word to reporters? Like, you know, like, and then there's the whole thing with uh, Gawker where you were like putting Britney Spears stickers on their door, like relentlessly, <laughs> you know, like, um, like talk about yeah. those kinds of things, you know, like what, uh, you know, how much, um, time do you spend, thinking through this kind of stuff and then how much time do you spend executing 
for the shares and just I didn't spend any time like I didn't sit there thinking like what do I want to do about this thing it was just like an idea that was there probably someone else I remember someone else like told me you should do that and I was like yeah I think I already thought of that and was going to do it at some point so I just wrote the blog post and some person I had a writing class with in college posted about it on the New York Times Freakonomics blog and then that's where everyone like linked to. Right. So I I didn't expect that to get all that attention at all. So you didn't like and did you push your friend to uh post about it on the Freakonomics blog or did he do that of his own volition? He was scared of it. I don't even, I don't know him that well. Oh, wow. Okay. But I don't think this, that thing was good for me in the long term, in terms of promotion. Because, like, every article is, well, the Gotha article is, like, Talon made talk out of hours on book he hasn't even written yet, <laughs> which seems, like, shitty of me. But actually, in the blog post, it said I'd written, like, 80% of it or something. So that gives an impression to most people that, like, just don't read this guy's books. There's nothing in there that will... He'll just be trying to trick you or something. <laughs> so, so that's probably turned off, like, a lot of readers. Do you regret? But, you regret it? Like, do you spend? Do you ever feel like, I don't know? I mean, I know you said you think it was bad for you, but do you ever sit there and go, "God damn it, I made a terrible mistake"? Or are you able to sort of let it go? That's a kind. I mean, because I'm the kind no, of person. I was just going to say, like, I'm the kind of person who would hyperanalyze. Uh, I do hyperanalyze way too many things about myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think. Yeah, that's terrible in my view in terms of getting killed by my books, but it's like exactly what I want to do in my life. Like it's... I I know it's quite terrible in that way, but in another way, it's exciting to me. And that's the thing that I focus on first. Like I'm never thinking... I won't do something that I think is like boring to if it's gonna like get me to sell more books, I don't think. Too large to be. And has anything changed like, has anything changed in your approach since you've been picked up by like a bigger house and you've gotten a bigger advance and things seem like cause it feels like Taipei could potentially be um a bigger event and could sell more books than you've sold in the past. Like do you have that sense and has it changed the way you think of how you present yourself online or no no I don't think so do you have like but another example I'll tell you another example of the like the sabotaging of myself like the title of Richard Yates being Richard Yates and the characters being named Dakota Fanning and Haley Drew Osmond 
<laughs> the, that's like a major detriment to me in terms of getting reviews from professional places like New York Times or getting them to view it as serious or a lot of other people. But I felt like if I didn't do that, I just had no justification for not doing that except for the New York Times will take it more seriously. That seems like bullshit. I understand. I mean, this, the New York times, like, you know, like it's like, get, get a sense of humor. Like, I don't know. Like if that's really the way that they're going to evaluate something like, Oh, he named a character after Haley Joel Osment. We're not going to take this seriously. Like that seems crazy. Well, I don't think the New York times, probably a lot of people there. I don't know. I'm just talking about like generally. Right. The kind of person. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, like people think like, Oh, this guy's putting me on. He's not serious or something, but. I don't know. But I wouldn't, if I read, if Lori Moore had one of her books, the characters were named like um, Brad Pitt and <laughs> Jessica um, Albion or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think, I would have different views towards it maybe. Yeah. So I'm not sure. But it's also like, I mean, I think different writers, you know, have different, sensibilities and you sort of get to know them because like a writer like Brady Stanellis, who I know that you're a fan of and who's had some nice things to say about your work. Um, you know, he drops a lot of pop culture references and you know, his, I think his work, it's, it's safe to say gets taken seriously or it gets reviewed at least by, you know, places like the New York times. So it just, I think a lot of it, maybe it's just a, a process of familiarization where like, and I feel like it's happening for you. Like, I feel like the bigger publications are, um, Okay, here's what I would say. I feel like the literary community and the reviewing, you know, the world of book reviews or whatever uh, might not or might have underestimated how serious you are uh, as an artist. And I, I hate even using that phrase, but what I mean by that is just like how hard you've worked. Like you've, I feel like you've, I've, and I've argued this on your behalf uh, without you knowing it before in conversations with friends, but if people read your blog or read interviews with you or read your books, like it's clear that you've done the reading you've read, you know, a huge amount of books, like more than I have, frankly. And I feel like you're really disciplined in terms of, uh, how you work and that you try really hard to make good books that are very interesting and, um, have a very strong sense of identity, meaning that, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very much you, like no one else could have written this stuff. And I feel like maybe you're at the point where people are starting to realize that. Do you have, do you agree? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. but the thing is, um, I don't, topic <laughs> have you ever well, let me ask you let me ask you this have you ever felt um angered because you felt like people weren't taking you seriously enough or like didn't give you i don't know you know you ever feel frustrated like you know i'm really uh, doing 
what needs to be done. I'm doing the work and people are, you know, making kind of like broad judgments of my work based on these little details, you know? Probably at the beginning sometimes, but now I'm just, it just makes sense. Everything makes sense yeah. to me, I think. Um, okay, so college years, uh, just to trace it a little bit more. Like I remember reading something with you, and I forget exactly what it was, um, but you were talking about a particularly like depressive period that you went through in the beginning of your college existence. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, well, pretty much all, I would view myself as depressed through all of high school and college, probably. Like clinically depressed? The period, clinically. I well, I never, I went to a psychologist or something like that in high school, I think. I just went one time. But no, I wasn't diagnosed as by anyone, no. Okay. Yeah, I went to a shrink once too, just once. Like it was like I was twenty-two or whatever, and I was like, "God, I'm I hate my life." <laughs> and I went in once, but it didn't make me feel any better. I just felt weird. I, it wasn't the right therapist, I guess. Yeah, I just felt like this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think like I think I just laid there and listened to a tape or something. <laughs> Uh, that's sort of a, a funny visual, but, um, do you, were you like, like depressed to the point of like not being able to get out of bed? Uh, were you like, you know, like what, what did it, what did depression look like in you during this time? Um, just if you saw me outside, you probably think that person seems really depressed, <laughs> but I was still functioning. I, it's hard to judge depression. Because supposedly there's people who, like, can't, really can't leave their beds. But I was always able to leave my bed. Were you but then when I'm outside, I would feel like everyone else is much happier than me. Were you ever suicidal? Um, it's hard to say, since I never, I have never tried to kill myself. So you weren't, like, making plans or, you know, doing anything that extreme? I don't think so. And so... Was I mean, I would, I think, I would think about it, but I don't know how seriously. Probably not very seriously. Well, I've always argued, uh, or not always, but in my adult life, I've argued that it's sort of strange to not think about suicide. In, a, in with some degree of um, serious thought, you know, like because it's it feels like such a natural question to ask yourself in light of the fact that life is so difficult. You know, I, I happen to have come to a place where I sort of, uh, or I don't even sort of, I believe that it it's a selfish act and very destructive. You know, I I, I don't think that there, <sighs> I think that there are certain instances where it's defensible. You know, if somebody's like really suffering from some sort of health ailment or, you know, you're like in some, you know, foreign prison or something being like abused horribly, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there, yeah. there's a de defensible circumstances, but I, you know, I've sort of come to believe that it's, um, you know, a really negative selfish thing to do. But 
I, I also think that like it seemed it would seem very strange to me to meet an adult who hadn't given it some thought, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's many ways to think about it, right? Hello. Yeah. No. I mean, like, what are the ways? What are the ways? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess, like, I guess, I kind of just uh, alluded to a little bit of it, but, um, yeah. It's, a, I guess, like, that... go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, it's like. Uh, I forget who it was, and I don't want to sound too precious, but I think it might have been like Sartre or one of these philosophers who said it was like the central question. You know, like um, yeah, it's a yeah, you know, it's a deep part of the human experience of like why put up with this, you know, if you know, it's essentially yeah. painless on the other side, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Suicide. Yeah. <laughs> so was this uh was this period like this depressive period where you decided to become uh, a writer or decided to try writing fiction or did you have an inkling of wanting to do this earlier in your life? No, it was during this part of first or second year of college when I started trying really hard and felt committed to, to doing it. Do you remember what instigated it? Um, not exactly. No. The first piece of writing that really excited me was Roy Moore's People Like That Are The Only People Here or something like that. The story in a collection Birth of America about the child with cancer. When I read that, I was really excited. Maybe that. And was it like, I mean, I know like at least partially the excitement was, uh, well, I don't know. Did you feel right away that like, this is something I could do or was it more just like, this is something I, w I wish I could do. You know, like how much confidence did you have from an authorial standpoint early on? Like, did you go into it, like, feeling insecure about whether or not you could do it, or did you have a decent amount of confidence from the start? I'm not sure, but at some point, I was definitely like, I can do it. Because <clears throat> I was just spending, like, all my time reading and writing. And then in the writing workshops, I would, I would feel like I knew enough about what was being talked about to like, to like defend people, and I don't do that a lot. You would defend people. Yeah. Well, like, so you yeah. went, you went to NYU uh, for undergrad, right? Yeah. And were the workshops, um, were they mean? Like, were people pretty brutal about their critiques, or was it... Sometimes they were mean, yeah. <clears throat> there would be usually be three or four students who would be mean, I think. And you would... would yeah. you would you, inter would you only defend people when you actually liked their work, or would you defend people just because you didn't want to see them get savaged? <laughs> 
no, I would always defend people. I think, um, I mean, I don't think there's any piece of art that I wouldn't defend if someone is shit-talking. Yeah, okay, because let's talk about this, because I know um, you've written about and have talked about how you don't believe in quote, good and bad art and like people making those kinds of uh, assessments of creative work. Is that right? I wouldn't say I don't believe that. I would just say that it doesn't make sense to me to call something good or bad without defining a context and a goal and a perspective for it. That's just like an observation that I feel like most people would agree on. Well, I mean, do you find, so do you, is that a, is that a reaction or do you find yourself frustrated with a lot of literary criticism for that reason? Because they're not creating that context or giving like parameters to how they assess a book? Not, no, I don't, I mean, it's just happening, it's just always, I don't feel frustrated right now. You don't? Okay. I understand it, yeah. Do you get frustrated when friends of yours uh, or people online or start talking about, like, <laughs> like, what's good and what's bad, and I get sort of, I get, I don't know, I get exhausted by all that. I have a hard time getting really worked up about uh, whether or not I think something's good or bad, you know, I, I you know, I, I, if I like something, I get excited about it, and I tend to want to like talk about it and share the book with people. But if I don't like something, I don't tend to want to sit there and bitch about it. I just sort of like put it down, you know. Yeah, actually, I do. I do get upset, or I feel really bad if. If someone I'm close to starts like saying something is bad, and like they, it seems like they really mean it, and I can't convince them that it's not bad just because they don't like it, I get really upset. <laughs> what does that look like when you get really upset? Um. All right, folks, there you go. That is Tao Lin. Go get his new novel. It's called Taipei. It is available now in trade paperback and ebook formats from vintage contemporaries. You can find Tao online at taolin.info. That's taolin.info. He's on the Facebook, and you can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at Tao underscore Lin. Don't forget, the second half of this interview is going to go live this Sunday, June the 9th, 2013. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. Uh, you can do that free of charge at iTunes or via Stitcher, or better yet, just go download the free official Other People app. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, if you have thoughts on this podcast and you want to email me, or if you just have thoughts in general and you want to tell me a story, my address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Dot com letters at otherpeoplepod.com otherwise uh, 
listen to some Terrence McKenna. The guy's fascinating. And uh, there's a podcast out there called Machine Elves Are Go. Machine Elves, as in little munchkin-like people. Machine Elves Are Go. Sounds a little strange. It's a nice collection, though, of MP3s, and you can listen for free. And uh, it will help you get your act together before they put you in a box and plant you. Please remember that Henri Matisse played the violin and that Schopenhauer was found dead sitting at the breakfast table. That is it for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks to Taolin. Uh, go get Taipei. I am going to try to get my act together. I'm going to try to do some telepathy. I want to have a telepathic experience. You see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs>